Hiya, how's it going? Welcome to a brand new episode of the High Performance Podcast. Before we get going, I've got some big news. We are coming on tour around the UK. We're coming to a city near you. It's an amazing show that we're creating and we want you to be there, obviously. Um, Details are yet to be fully announced. However, you can get in there early. All you need to do is scroll down in the description for this podcast and you will see a link. Click the link register your interest i will send you an email when we're ready to announce exactly what we're doing and exactly where we're coming but i'd love you to join us on the high performance podcast tour throughout 2022 right time to crack on with today's episode you're about to hear from a man that you might not have heard of but after you've listened to this podcast you will be thinking about him and his philosophy and his life and his lessons all day here's what you can expect on today's episode all of these people that I was mixing with as a young kid were all involved in criminal activity. And then that whole world becomes completely normalised to you. Like, I didn't want to die in prison. I didn't want to go to bed one night and never wake up ever again and that be the end of my life, like locked in a cage. I have never physically been in so much pain in my life. If you said to me today, I had the power to rewind my life back and not spend 10 years in prison, I would not do it. I would go back there and spend every single one of those 10 years sitting in that cage. So you're about to hear from someone who at one point was one of the most wanted criminals in the country. He was um, a career criminal. He grew up in a, a criminal family. He thought that people like you and I that worked hard and paid our taxes and earned our money within the system were the fools. And he thought that the way that he lived his life was the real answer. And as you'll hear in this episode, I came into this with quite a firm belief, right, that You're either a good person or you're a bad person. And what he explains throughout this conversation is that it's not about being a good or a bad person. It's about the environment in which you're brought up, the environment in which you live. And today's guest, John McAvoy, has gone from um, being in the high security unit at Belmarsh with some of the very worst criminals you can ever imagine to becoming an elite athlete and going around the world inspiring and changing people. And it's all because of one of the most amazing stories that you are ever, ever going to hear. He has an amazing book out as well called Redemption, which you can check out. Um, But thank you so much for coming to this episode of High Performance with John McAvoy. I promise you, you are not going to regret giving us an hour of your time. And for all the hundreds and hundreds of people that have been sending us messages for the last two years saying, please get John McAvoy on High Performance. Well, here you go. Um, You won't hear many conversations like this anywhere else. Coming up next, John McAvoy on the High Performance Podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, before we get going, congratulations to our founding partners, Lotus Cars. Um, They won a national award voted for by The Times, Sunday Times, The Sun, and Driving.co.uk. They are the Manufacturer of the Year at the News UK Motor Awards. Um, They were commended for their impressive additions to their range, their pioneering, exciting new product development, which, of course, is the Avaya and the Amira. No mention of um, high-performance podcast in the award, but I'm sure that's also partly uh, the reason for their award, because they decided to partner with us and um, show their hand for being a dynamic, forward-thinking and brilliant car manufacturer. Lotus, congratulations. If you want to follow them on social media, they are at Lotus Cars. But all of our congratulations for winning the Manufacturer of the Year Award. We're proud of you all at Lotus. Well done. Joining Damien and I is a man who today lives a life unrecognisable from when he was one of the UK's most wanted men. Locked away in Britain's most secure prisons with terrorists and murderers. In 2006, he was in Belmarsh. A 10-year stretch for armed robbery lay ahead of him after living an upbringing and a life of crime for decades. 15 years later... He's a professional triathlete, he's competing across the globe, and possibly most importantly, helping to inspire young people to choose the right path in life. Not bad for someone who police officers and prison officers thought would never change. His is one of the most powerful and valuable stories you will ever hear. You can read about it in his incredible book, Redemption. Damien and I have read it. It is, I can't recommend it enough to you. And you're about to find out over the next hour why it's such a powerful book. Please welcome to High Performance John McAvoy. Hello, guys. Nice to have you with us. I'm glad to be here, finally. <laughs> Good. Yeah, we've been trying to get this going for ages, and now, now we manage it. Um, this is going to be an interesting answer, because you've kind of lived two lives in one. When I say to you, what is, in your mind, high performance? What do you think of? Continued growth. Yeah. Always, always be willing to learn and grow as an individual. Have an open mind to what's possible. Okay. Well, I really want to talk to you about this then, because... I'm really interested in who you are as a person, right in your core, okay? Because I I see things quite black and white. My granddad was a police officer. I was desperate to be a policeman, colorblind, couldn't be a cop, right? So I look at people that do the kind of stuff that you did as a youngster, robbing banks, getting involved in drugs, knocking around with the wrong people, and I say, bad individual. Then I look at someone who does all the things you do now, elite athlete, competing on the highest level, inspiring others, spreading a good message, and I go, good person. So this is confusing for me. In your core, what are you? Are you that John McAvoy in the early years, or are you the guy that we see now? So I was, from a, from a young man, I would always say I was incessantly driven as a child. The reason I would say I was, to me it's clear, it was when my mum told me my dad had died before I was born. So my mum was eight months pregnant with me. My dad went to bed, a 38-year-old man, had an undiagnosed heart problem, dies of a massive heart attack. My mum brings me into this world as a single parent. I had a sister and these incredible aunties, my mum's sisters. And, and I had this amazing childhood. 
really that I was happy. I remember my mum used to take me to museums, HMS Belfast, London Dungeons. Every weekend, like she used to work in a florist. She didn't have much money, but she just used to do anything she could for me and my sister. So, so we had a really happy childhood. And when I did start going to primary school, it was only then when I really started interacting with other children. And then like, it become clear that I didn't have a dad because people used to tease me, like children used to tease me. And I asked my mum, because one thing, I, again, I always was, I've always been inquisitive. When I was at school, I was always that difficult child. Why is the sky blue? Why is this? Why is that? And my mum sat me down and my mum explained my dad had died. And again, my response was, where's he gone? My mum simplifies and says, he's gone to heaven. Where's heaven? And sort of, I then realised that sort of I wasn't going to live forever from being a very young person. And this really did have a profound impact over me as a child. And this sparked something inside me that when I got older, I wanted my life to have a significance. Like I wanted to achieve something in my life because I knew I wasn't going to live forever. My life wasn't just going to go on and on and on. And um, as I got a little bit older, um, like I said, I loved history as a kid. And my mum used to take me to these museums and she used to buy me these magazines out of the newsagents. They was called Discovery Booklets. And every month it was about a different stage in history. And I just remember one day just putting these puzzles because they were for children together. And like, it's like Henry VIII and Napoleon. And as I'm putting these puzzles together, like I'm reading about people that had died hundreds of years before I was even born, but they had done something with their lives. Their life had the significance. And that was then really like, I was like, I want my life to have meaning and I want to do something with my life. And that focus, I would say, has always been in me since I was a, a young kid. I didn't want to be average. I wanted to do something extraordinary with my life. And did you ever articulate that, that feeling that you had to your, your mum? She knew I was ambitious and I was always very confident as a kid to some degrees. Like I, I was confident in things. I would go off and do stuff on my own, but I was shy around other people. Um, and I think that was because I didn't really have a father in my life as a kid. Like really, when I was really, and it was just women. So I used to always hide behind my mum. I used to watch the adverts about British Telecom. And this is why to me, being here today, it's like my life's done this full circle. Because when I was a little boy, like, I used to watch these adverts on the telly and, and I said to my uncle one day, how much does British Telecom make? And he said, they make billions of pounds a year. And I was like, when I get older, I'm going to own British Telecom. And I was absolutely like, convinced that was what I was going to do when I got older. I was going to be a billionaire and I was going to own British Telecom because I saw phone boxes on every street corner. Every time I went around my aunties and uncle's houses, they had a BT landline because they had a monopoly over the whole like, telephone communication system. So to be here today doing a podcast with you guys, but when I was a little kid watching this tower on the news and, and on the adverts, it just feels like my life's done this full circle. So coming back to that question about whether you're at your core a good or a bad person, right? Did you not think when you were young and you started going down the road in the life of crime that it was the wrong thing to do? No. And I'll tell you why. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of reasons why. So when my mum's ex-husband got released from prison, when I was eight years old, he was the first male I ever had in my life on a, on a regular basis I interacted with. And I just built up this rapport with him. Now, this man, he served 16 years for armed robbery. He'd been shot by the police twice and he had five acquittals at the Old Bailey. And then growing up as a young kid, he'd come into my mum's life, not to have a relationship, but my sister was actually his daughter. So it was my half-sister. And every weekend he used to come around and take my sister out. And I think my mum didn't want me to miss out. So my mum used to let me go out with him. And I was too young to really understand what this man was, but he was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old. He was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. He exposed me from a very young age to these serious and organized criminals. Now at that age, I didn't connect up all the dots. 
it was only when my granddad passed away and when um, me and my mum and my aunties were clearing up my granddad's flat in Peckham, my granddad had this envelope and he had he kept all these newspaper clippings from all like, the tabloid newspapers. And then I'm looking at them and there's pictures of Billy on the floor with guns around him and like arm robber. But, and then I connected up the dots, like the money, the power that I perceived that he had, all of these people that I was mixing with as a young kid were all involved in criminal activity. And then that whole world becomes completely normalized to you. So I would look at you today as, as, as someone quite young and think you was abnormal. Again, what these adults were projecting onto me was like the system was corrupt, it was unfair. Um, people that engaged with it were sheep and we weren't sheep and we lived outside of that. So it, it was hard for me as a kid to then fathom that other people pay taxes, they work, they paid 40% to the government. So growing up in that environment, like that whole world becomes so normal to you that you look upon it as just, that's life. And people, you hear these stories about people going to prison and coming out, escaping from prison. So even again, you'd look at my life and think it's just this extreme. At that moment, it was so normal to me because I didn't know anything else. See, what fascinates me about this, John, is that that obviously took you down a route of illegal activities and things like that. But if you flip it on its head, it could potentially, that understanding the power of environment, be used as a huge positive, you know, in terms of images of success and other means of achievement. So what were the kind of frames of reference that you saw being given to you that were so powerful in terms of normalising it? So going back to me wanting to own British Telecom, I thought from a very young age... Success was the acquisition of wealth right. and money. The more money I made in my life, the more successful I'd be. But I wasn't exposed to Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Bill Gates. I didn't see these people as children. I, I, they, but these guys that I was exposed to, my stepdad, all of his friends, all involved in organized crime, all multimillionaires, driving fast cars, apartments on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Um, everything was about money. Like... I can remember my stepdad, he used to say to me as a kid, he used to tell, always tell me he was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old. And he said, do you think you're going to beat me? Do you reckon you're going to have more money than me? As, and I'm, I'm still young. I was still like a teenager. And I was absolutely driven that I would be. And, 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 and they, so they were the parameters of like what I deemed at that point in my life was success. It was, it was just the acquisition of money. It wasn't about being ostentatious. Um, I, I wasn't doing it to buy expensive stuff. But I thought the number... So I, I set myself that guy. I wanted to be a millionaire when I was 21 years old. And I set that. And that was what it was about. It was always about the success. It wasn't about the success would buy me these things. I didn't care about the materialistic side of it. It was more the acquisition of actually getting the money because the money was the goal. But if you were a parent listening to this podcast now and you'd be thinking, how do I give messages to my children around how they can be a success and they can be the agent of their own futures? What lessons would you learn having been immersed in, 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 in that world that parents could use for positive? I, I would say, and I, if I was opened up to other stuff as a kid and I didn't have these blinkers put on me and there, I, I realised there was other ways in which I could channel that drive. So like, I remember when I was 26 years old and I was reading books when I was in prison of Olympic athletes. I'm 26 years old. I'm being exposed to groups of people I didn't really even know existed. And then when I'm reading these books, I'm like, actually, I've got the same characteristics as these people. Everyone that I thought was like me were involved in crime. I didn't realise that there were other people out there that had the same attributes as me. So these attributes that I've always possessed, if you put them in something negative, they will be the most destructive 
things you can do. And then and literally, in my case, it cost me 10 years of my life on earth sitting in a cage. When I was 26 years old and I, ch I chose those characteristics to redirect them into something positive, the massive attributes that would lead me to be successful, it was the reshifting of, of my energy into something from negative into positive. And, and I say this quite often, like when I go into prisons and talk to young men, the ability and talents that they've got locked inside their bodies. Some of them, like geniuses, like with maths, like if you gave them a kilo of drugs and you said, how much money could you make out of that? And they could break it down into grams and how much they would get and how much they would cut it with. And if you could open up opportunities for them where they realize these skills that they've got, if you put them working on the London Stock Exchange and taught them how to sell shares, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's just that they apply it the same thing. See, I remember reading your book and there's a brilliant bit where you say, um, were you driving your uncle's Porsche or were you being driven in it? It, it, it all depends which story we were telling. If it, there's a moment where you talk about in your book, looking out the window of the yeah, car. I was the passenger. You're the passenger. Yeah. And you're looking out the window of the car and you're looking at all the other kids walking to school, doing what every other child does. And you look at them and think, you fools, look at the level I'm operating at. I'm sitting in a Porsche. And actually, that wasn't the wrong thing to think because I believe that you were, back then, as high performance as you are now, you were a high performance criminal. You worked out high performance ways to outwit the police, high performance ways to rob banks, high performance ways to live a life of crime rather than a life of good. But it was still high performance, wasn't it? Strangely. But, like... I could tell you in the litany of stories over the years where I've been in prison with some of the biggest drug traffickers in the world and like the way they could transport drugs from South America into mainland Europe and not have any connection, no phone calls, no emails. They've got the mindset, but again, it's applied in something very negative. They're entrepreneurs, they're clever, they're intelligent men, they're not stupid idiots. But it's, again, it's the environment in which they've grown up around and the things that become normal to them. They don't realise that they can do other stuff with those skills. And that's why I'm all about opportunity and about opening up people's mindsets to what's possible for them. Like if my PE teacher saw me when I was a kid and identified that I had a talent, I was good at something, but I didn't really ever have that as a kid. And that's why I'm so passionate about trying to open up in other young people's minds and give them the opportunities to grow. And for people that are listening to this and they don't know your story and they, they haven't read the book, can you just briefly explain to us the peak of your criminality and the lengths that the police went to to try and get hold of you and keep hold of you once they've got you? So I, got, I went to prison when I was 18. Well, I got arrested for uh, nine counts of armed robbery. And the police... Uh, I, so when you're under the age of 21 years old in the UK, you can't be kept with adults. But the police made me a Category A prisoner as a teenager, and it's very unheard of in, in the UK. They don't really do it. And then they had to sort of do this thing called Star Me Up, which then meant I got put in a male adult maximum security prison. I was potentially looking at 16 years in prison. I was 18 years old. To me, that was like, when my solicitor told me, I was like, I couldn't even fathom it because I hadn't really been alive that long. I got off the plea bargain at the Old Bailey. They offered me five years. I accepted it. By that point, I'd served a year in this maximum security adult male's prison. I got, got the five years. Then they couldn't justify holding me in that prison anymore. So they downgraded me to a young offenders institution. I got moved there. And then when I got moved there, because I'd just come from an adult prison as a, a Category A prisoner, they then thought I was an escape list. Now, I, growing up in my very core, by again, what the projection of the adults around me, I had absolute disdain for the system and the state. I had no respect for it whatsoever. And suddenly I'm in prison. I've got this male, female locking me in this, in this box. Um, my hatred just festered even more. And they tried to come to my cell one night and they wanted me to strip naked and put, put me in this special yellow suit. So when I walked around the prison, that the prison officers could identify as an escape risk prisoner. And I refused to give them my clothes. They put me in a segregation cell for seven days. After the seven days was up, they said to me, when you go on the wing, you're going to be a wing cleaner. 
and I refused. I said, I'm not cleaning up your crap all day. Because again, that hatred, being very anti-authority, they put me back in front of the governor. The governor said to me, basically, I'm giving you another seven days confined to cell in a segregation unit because you're refusing a lawful order in prison. They've got their own rules. And he smiled at me and he went, you're in my world. I'm not in your world. I tell you what to do. <laughs> and that was like a red rag to a ball. So when I went back to the segregation cell, they can't stop you reading books. And the, the librarian used to come around with a trolley. And one day I just picked this book up and it, it was about Nelson Mandela. And I remember reading it as a, at this point I was 19 and there was a part in it where he was speaking about when he was in Robin Island at the beginning, he used to be a smoker. And he realized one day that the prison officers was using the fact that he smoked cigarettes as a punishment to take something away from him. So he said, if I don't smoke again, I'll relinquish that power you got over me. So in my mind as a 19 year old, I thought, well, if actually, if you, by putting him in this tiny little room, if you think this is a punishment, I'll take it away from you. So I then stayed in that room for 365 days solid. I didn't come out for exercise. They come around, I remember on Christmas, and I look back now, like he was, an, he was a good man. He was a prison officer, he was a Welsh guy, and he opened up my door on Christmas day, and he said, do you wanna phone your mum up? I said, no. And he said, look, this isn't good for you. Like, you know, I said, no. And I refused, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the phone Christmas day. But that was where the journey of exercise started, because I started doing the cell circuits, um, and that, it made me feel alive, like I was a human. I didn't exist, I was actually a living being. And up to this point, I didn't do any exercise. After the year had passed, I'd done a year and a bit on remand. They opened up the door and they let me walk out into the street. <laughs> and I was a hundred times worse than I was before I went in. I was even more determined to make money. I hated them even more. And I used to feel, I, every day I woke up in that cell and I thought for every year you've taken of my life, I want a million pound when I get out. And that was my motivation to get through that sentence, like that first one. And I got out, I was out for four days, found tracking devices on my car. Police are watching me, I think, well, I'm, it's inevitable I'm going to go back to prison because I know they're going to do everything they can. And then I lived this typical lifestyle that you can imagine. Went out to the Netherlands, went down to Spain. I was going out, I was around people. Doing crimes in those countries. Yeah, like yeah. I was hanging out with criminals. There were businessmen down there. I remember there was a businessman, he just sold a business for £75 million. Bottles of champagne, beach parties. And I was, I was 22 years old, high octane, taking drugs. I had no respect for my body really. And then I come back to the UK for a week for a friend's birthday and it's probably like something you would see in a film now i go come back to the uk one of my stepdad's friends um asked to meet me i went and met him at a cafe in kent he asked me if i wanted to commit a robbery with him initially i said no i didn't want to do it and then he he basically said to the summer summer money that we would earn and it was easy and the greed overcome me again i thought well it's easy best decision i've ever made in my life what i didn't realize there was a hundred man police surveillance operation watching him from the serious organized crime agency. Four days later in South London, I'm laying face down on the floor, 20 machine guns pointing at my head. We was, we was gonna ambush a security van. I thought my life, to be honest with you, like when I was having that car chase, I genuinely, genuinely would have died to try to get away from the police. I, I remember in my head, I had this, like as I'm talking to you now, I had this voice in my head going, I'm not going back to prison. Because the first time I went, I didn't know what to expect, but this time I knew that segregation unit was coming. I knew what was coming. And I, I remember it, man, like when they tried to ambush me, I just was having this car chase and, and I just kept this voice going, I'm not going back to prison, I'm not going back. And then I crashed the car, got out, ran off, and I did get away briefly. And then I ran into a cul-de-sac and then yeah, they come running up with the machine guns. And then when I got arrested, the, uh, the police officer, and I actually sent him a copy of my book, actually, my book come out to, not to thank him and it wasn't arrogance, it was to say that people do change their lives. I wanted him to see that I did something in my life. So this police officer arrested me when I was a kid, when I was 18, and he was angry that I didn't get longer than what I should have got. 
what he thought I should have got. And when I was in the back of the police car, I pretended I had concussion. Because I thought, if they think I've got concussion, they have to take me to hospital. And take me to hospital, I'm going to try to escape because I've got nothing to lose. And I'm drifting, I'm pretending I'm drifting out of consciousness because when I was on the floor, my face was scratched up because of the car accident stuff. And uh, I, I sent someone get into the, the front seat of this unmarked police car because I had me in the back of it. And he kept saying my name. And I looked up and I, I recognised him instantly. And he looked at me and he smiled. He went, you didn't learn your lesson, did you? And he went, you're going to go back to prison for a long time. And I remember we, we had this armed escort going to Wolfrow Police Station. And again, it was one of these summer days in September. And as we were driving there, he said to me, look out the window, John. He went, you won't be seeing this for a long time. And what we were talking about at the beginning in the regards of like the people being sheep, I would have done anything at that moment to swap places with those people walking down those high streets, going to Tesco's or Waitrose at that moment. I got transferred to the police station. I was there three days. It starts again, the no comment interviews. And I didn't really realise then the journey that I was going to go on. And I didn't realise the lengths, the gravity of what the police were doing. But the police made an application to the Ministry of Justice and they made me a level two double category A prisoner. So my, my escape had to be made impossible because they believed I had the capability, the means and the will to escape from lawful custody. So I got transferred to Belmarsh Prison. And then when I was in the reception area of the prison where they process you, they put me into a holding cell. And then a, a prison officer come up to me. And again, I was just being difficult. I wasn't giving him my address. Where do you live? No fixed abode. What religion wouldn't tell him? What should, I, wouldn't, I was just being hard work. And he put me in this holding cell and he come. He said, you're going on the HSU. And at the time, I just heard H and I thought it was the hospital because I pretended I had concussion. I thought it must have gone down somewhere. And he walked off and then an hour or so later, loads of prison officers come, handcuffs. And they said, you're going on the high security unit. And the high security unit in Belmarsh is the high security unit in the whole of Western Europe. They built it in the 1990s for the IRA um, because they built a tunnel from the, from the prison under the road to go into Woolwich Crown Court. So they didn't have to transport you out of the prison because the escape risk was so high. And then they put me on this unit and then I walked out in the exercise yard because it was the first time I was out of that for, like, for three and a half days. And the prison officer went, look, you've got an opportunity now. You, you either go back to your cell or you go out and exercise. And they walked me on the wing and everything was electric doors. So you can't take hostages with, so you can't take them with their keys. So all these airlock doors were opening. He let me put my little bit of property I had in my prison cell. And then they walked me through all these electric doors again, airlock, go outside. And you had this sense that you was outside because the air temperature had changed. But it felt like you was inside because when you looked up, there was so much anti-helicopter wire and metal mesh to stop the helicopters coming over the top of it that you could see the sky, but you could only see it through like a hamster cage. And I remember he opened up the doors and he let me go out to this yard. And then I'm looking around and, uh, and the 21-7 the suicide bombers were on there, tried to buck the tube and Sheikh Abu Hamza that was fighting extradition to America and one other guy. And I really realized at that moment the, 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 the trouble I was in and, and how long they obviously wanted to keep me in prison for. And I was on that unit for two years, um, waiting to go on trial. Went back through the process again of exercising in my cell, doing the cell circuit, going through my case. And then it was 2007, um, I go to Woolwich Crown Court and I got two life sentences. So can I ask you about that phrase you told us at the start when you'd realised that your dad had died? the month before you were born, so you knew that life was short and that we were all going to die at some stage. Did a sense of death or, or, or loss overcome you when you found yourself in such extreme circumstances like that? Yeah, like w when I was in prison, I was fueled by hate. That was one big, it was, it was the hatred towards the state and the system. So it was never showing weakness. I was always, never ever showing weakness. Whatever they take off you, 
just don't even let them see it bothers you. Um, I remember I did have a fear. I was young. I was young still. So I knew I had time on my side. But if you got ill and I died in prison, I didn't want to be that person. There was a, quite a few occasions where people committed suicide, caught cancer in prison and died. And I didn't want to die in a prison cell. But it wasn't I went to like change. I just wanted to get out of prison. And also that, that whole theme, like when I was in there, I was always looking for angles to get out because I, I wanted to be free. I used to remind myself when I was in there, Damien, that, that I used to repeat a mantra to myself every day. These people have kidnapped me. This is not my life. They have kidnapped me. This is not my life. I will not accept this as my existence. I will not be institutionalized by them. Because I used to watch guys in there that have been in there for 20 years and they have this glazed look. Like they just, their eyes just like mirrors and they, they've become so detached from the real world. And I was, I'm never becoming like that. And I remember when my uncle went to prison, he was in prison for 16 years. And I asked him that question once. I said, how did you not become institutionalized? And again, he said it, I never allowed that place to become my existence. And he used to stay connected to the real world, listen to current affairs programs on the radio, reading the newspaper, reading anything he could to stay connected to reality because that wasn't reality. But it was like the death element, definitely like when I was in there, it was a conscious thought that I didn't want to die in prison. I didn't want to go to bed one night and never wake up ever again. And that'd be the end of my life, like locked in a cage. And you now do so much work to help young people. And we'll talk about that in great detail and the whole, the whole fitness and exercise thing. But there's something really powerful there, isn't there, about believing that you're, you're more than the place you're in at the moment. And I think so many young people especially see the world they're in, see their environment and think, well, this is me. These are the cards I've been dealt. How important is it for you to now pass on the message that you are in control of your own destiny rather than destiny controlling you? I think any person, any individual in the world that has any element of success has a moral obligation to reach back and help other people. I, I was one of these most entrenched, fixated, goal-orientated individuals you could ever imagine. I like literally, I gave up 10 years of my life going to prison in the pursuit of greed and money. But I think it's my responsibility as a person that's come out the other side of that and grown and seen how colourful the world is and how beautiful people are and meeting incredible people. I do genuinely believe it's a moral obligation of myself to help as many people as I can have that awareness that there's a better life out there. And even like recently I've gone across in the summer holidays, I was going across the country and I was visiting different schools and, and seeing children, mate. And like, I went to a school in Newham, right? And we picked this school in Newham to go into to work in the summer holidays to make him into like youth centres so kids, young kids from that area could engage in sport and have healthy food. And my friend was with me. And we picked that school because it was the most deprived in London, the highest rates of um, inactivity. It ticked every single box as a red, 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 red. And my mate was in there and these are babies. These are four or five-year-old children. Me and you could go in there tomorrow and statistically nearly all of those children will fail. I shouldn't be able to tell you, look at a four-year-old and say, that child's probably going to fail in life. And that's not them going to prison. That's them not reaching their true potential in life. And then I've seen in the extreme other end of that, where then I've seen children in prison. And again, these talents and abilities that they didn't know they had and they've been expressed whilst they're in prison, but they've already made the bad life choice. And the bad life choice has meant they're going to spend the next 15, 20 years of their life in prison. I sat across the table once. I went into um, Rainsbrook Young Offenders Institution or an STC, Secure Training Centre for Children. And there was these two young men in there, they're 15 years old. And we're sitting there having dinner. Both of them are serving life for a minimum of 15 years. And, and he went to me, I'm gonna be your age when I get out. And it threw me. I couldn't even fathom, like I've been in prison for 10 years and I was trying to 
say to him, look, like you're going to serve five years longer than I did. Look what I've gone on to do in my life. This isn't the end for you. You're still a child. You can learn in it. You can go to education. You can better your existence. Utilize this time while you've, whilst you're in it. Don't just waste it and squander it. But I do, I think in general terms, I think if any person's got any profile, any platform, any resources, I do think it's an obligation that we all have as, a, as, a, as humanity to lift other people up and help them. So what should we be saying to our children, to the young people growing up in this country from, from minute one to get the best out of them to help them live a high performance life? I think it's about belief, installing belief in them. It is possible. Like you, the only limits you ever impose on yourself is yourself, it's your own limits. Sometimes society, it's a reflection on other people, they don't want you to grow. Like the amount of people since, since I got released from prison, I'm at the beginning, shall I say, not so much now, but at the beginning that doubted me, Leopard never changes its spots, he's going to go back to his old ways, he, he's never going to be able to do and grow as a person, he, you're too old, you're not good enough, you're a scumbag, you're this, you're that. But I just used to blank it all out and I, I created this ecosystem around, or not an ecosystem, I created a bubble around me of people that were positive, that wanted me to grow and develop and supported me. That description you used of seeing some people in the prison system and recognising that glazed look on the face indicates and your book does as well john about you're a really keen people watcher you constantly even when you're in the criminal world as much as in the athletic world now what are the kind of characteristics that you look for that give you a sense that somebody's a good person or has potential um by i i if, if i was in a social situation like we was at an event i always watch how people treat the person in that place that they would value as being the lowest in there so that might be the T-boy, something like that. Yeah. I think that shows a lot about someone's character, by the way they treat people that can't do anything in return for them. And I, I'm very observant with that. I watch how people are respectful to people, certain people, maybe not so much others. I think, again, it's having conversations with people. And, and you, I think people, they will reveal themselves. They will reveal their true intentions. Like, is this a transactional relationship that we're engaging in? Or is it an authentic one? Do you genuinely care about what you're saying to me? Or is it because you feel like I can benefit you in some way? And in that transactional relationship, once it's done, I never see or hear from you ever again. But in the world you were in, mm. wouldn't that be, um, wouldn't that make you vulnerable? So what I'm about to say now, I did struggle with this a little bit when I got out. They say there's no honour among thieves, and that's true to a certain degree. But some of the most loyal people I've ever met in my life were in my past. And then I really struggled when I got out. And especially as my life started progressing and 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 sort of like I, I become like successful in what I was doing. And then I then really struggled with like people, again, the transactional nature of relationships. They wasn't really strong relationships with other humans. And it, that was really hard for me at the beginning because years ago, my, my circle was really tiny, but it's really tight. And like literally, I'd, we would all trust our lives in each other's hands. And then when I went from that into this new world, that was, that was hard for me to adjust. That was really, really, really hard for me to adjust. So how did you? Um, I just had to accept in, in, in certain regards, in certain things that you do in your life, you are going to come across people like that. Um, and, it, and it doesn't eat me up like so much it might have done at the beginning because I just couldn't understand why someone wasn't loyal when I couldn't really get why. What, if you don't like me, just say you don't like me to my face. Like that years ago, people would. I don't want to be with you. I don't trust you. I don't like you. Go away. Where you could do stuff in this world, people won't say that, but they stab you in the back. Or they talk behind your back and they gossip behind your back. And, and I, I didn't like that characteristic. So but I had to just let go of it and go, look, I'm walking on this new path. I'm going to surround myself with the best people I can in this new world and, and cut the dross out as much as I possibly can and interact with as little people in, in that world than, than I have to. So what were the common traits then between your inner circle when you were in the world of 
illegal activities and you're in a circle as an elite athlete. Again, trust, loyalty. That was another big thing as well, like trust when I got out. I didn't, I didn't trust people because I was brought up to be distrusting of people. I got myself really sick when I got out. Like I started, when, when I got released, I was so driven to be a good athlete. I felt that if I had anyone help me, they didn't want it as much as me. So I didn't have a coach and I coached myself. And I literally dug myself into this hole. And because I had this ability to suffer, like I could get up in the morning and wake up with the worst he like headaches, the worst sleep. I was overtraining massively. My body wasn't recovering. Like I used to basically run a marathon every single Sunday around Battersea Park and I'd be riding stupid distances, swimming stupid distances in a week and my body wasn't recovering. And I, I didn't want to get a coach because I kept thinking that if I had a coach, he wouldn't want my dream as much as me. And it was only when I got myself into this massive hole of overtraining and got a viral infection, um, a guy was observing me that I trained with once. He was a he was an Ironman triathlete and a coach, and and he saw me perform in a race and I didn't perform. I fell apart. I was walking the marathon. It was one of the most ex embarrassing experiences of my life. Like I put all this time and energy into this event, got myself really sick getting to it. I wasn't in a good starting point. And he reached out to me afterwards. He said, "You're not getting anywhere near your potential." He went, "I know how fit you and good you could be." And then that was where that trust element began and working with my friend Terry, um, met, met him in prison and, and we developed this trust. But at the beginning, like, it's, 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 it, was, it was learning about each other and, and, and realising that I needed other people to help me along my journey. I couldn't do it on my own. For people listening to this, let me just point out that you're sitting here um, top to toe in Nike yeah. gear because you're now a Nike athlete, which is a, a good example of the, the trajectory that your life has taken you. So let's talk about this journey then from career criminal to elite athlete. You started rowing in prison, that's where it began, and you broke world records and all kinds of things, and no one could quite believe what was happening, by the way, on prison food rather than an elite athlete's diet. Were you employing at that point when you started to row the same disciplines that made you a great criminal? Yes. That shall have What were they? The drive, the focus, uh, the, 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 the craving to be successful at something, not to be average, the suffering, the fact that when I was in prison, I was able to do stuff like I could, I could put myself in segregation cell 365 days. So I drew on that. So was it partly control as well? You had an opportunity to control something. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Like when, when I was in that environment, one of, the, one of the biggest drivers was the fact that you can strip me of everything. Like they, I had everything taken off me. Literally, I didn't have the clothes. They, I didn't own anything in that place, basically. And it didn't matter what they took from me they could not control my mind and body. They could not stop me from doing that exercise in that cell. They could not stop me from going on what that journey that I was on in my, in my own mind at that point. They can't control me. Um, and it's definitely, there was that feel within it. Um, and then I even like, when I was doing some of the records, I was highly motivated. Like even though I went through this process of, because the catalyst was my friend dying for the fact that I wanted to turn my life around. But when I was on that rowing machine and, and I started breaking those records, like I remember I broke the world record for 100,000 metres. And I remember when I got to like 85,000 metres, so 85 kilometres, I have never physically been in so much pain in my life. Like my muscles in my back were, were tremoring with cramp because I didn't have electrolyte drinks. And all I kept thinking about was the policeman that arrested me. And I kept thinking, my life means something. I'm not going to let you people just think. Because at that point, I felt like he just thought I was a piece of shit. He could lock in prison and I'm finished. And I was so highly motivated when I was doing it to prove him wrong. 
that I am good at something. And, and when I was at 85,000 metres, I just remember being in so much pain and I was on the record and I knew I could beat it. And I thought, I just got to suffer for 15 kilometres. That's all I got to suffer. And I was breaking it down to 500 metre chunks and just chipping away. And then I did it. But as I noticed, as I, as I carried on growing, I started letting go of that. And I started letting go of it. Mm. And it, that's not a healthy thing to carry forever. No, 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 no. Absolute no, no. Yeah. iron anger. Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. only no, going to take you it, so far. It's like poison in your body. It's, it poisons your soul. But you're still describing having a sense of purpose, aren't you? It's something that, that you can hold on to when you describe in the book, you're almost in that black hole of pain. So what did you transfer that sense of purpose from? So from proving somebody wrong to what? It was, it was actually the prison officer, Darren, that helped me. Um, and he was the one that identified that I was good on the RAM machine when he walked behind me one day and saw, and he was the man, first time in my whole life I'd ever had a, a male in my life that genuinely cared for me and wanted me to be successful just for the sake of me being successful. He had no vested interest. There was no contracts, no money, no nothing. It wasn't like he was, by having this link to me, we were going to Did it confuse you at first? What, what's I this did, about? I, 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 yeah, I couldn't, yeah, it was very, like, bear in mind as well, we're in prison, so... <laughs> For up to this point, for six years, Darren is my sworn enemy. Like, I had no respect for people like Darren at all. And it pains me saying this to you today because the way I perceived what he did and what he did for a living, he was, he was my captor. Like, he kept me in that place. Um, I hated him. And suddenly, I go through this, like, this moment of awakening when my friend dies. Again, this, this triggering of my immortality. And just to tell that story to people, it was someone you knocked around with as a yeah. criminal. You're in prison. You see the news. One of yeah. your best mates has been shot dead doing the job. Yeah, he died. Yeah, he died. He did a job. And as they were getting away in the, in the, in the getaway car, the tire on the car um, blew out and the car flipped. It was in the Netherlands. And then it, because it was English, UK criminals abroad in the Netherlands, it made news at 10. Um, so then I watched the last moments of my friend's life the following night on news at 10. And literally like the, the CCTV, they did a still of the CCTV footage. And, and, and it was like I was looking at my friend's eyes for the, the, the CCTV camera that they took the still on the news. And, and that was this moment of like, again, the realisation of my own mortality. And it triggered because I never lost anyone being alive that I loved. It was the first time I've ever experienced that, that loss. I never experienced my dad die because I wasn't born. I didn't know what it was like. But then suddenly my mate, my best friend that I loved and trusted with my life had died. Um, and it had a massive, massive impact over me. And then, so then when I went through this transition of wanting to do something different in my life, and then Darren identified this talent in me, the prison officer, and then the support he helped me with and, and, the, and the way that he used to come in on his days off to help sit with me to do these records. And, and he went above and beyond like what he needed to do. He'd bring me in books from outside about athletes. And I remember I used to go down to the gym and just sit in a sports hall with him and we'd talk about life and families. And he'd tell me about his wife and kids. And the prison officers, I think, used to look at him and think maybe I'm corrupting him and, and manipulating him. And we built up this powerful rapport with each other and friendship. And one day when, when, I, when I did that record, it was just me and him. At, they, they let a couple of prisoners come in and watch me finish it off. A couple of prison officers come in from the gym. And when I finished it, I was laying down on this blue gym mat and Darren sat down beside me and he went to me, you've got an ability and a talent that you can suffer. Even if you get out of prison and waste that talent, it's the biggest travesty I've ever seen as a prison officer. He said, do not waste it. From that moment inwards, everything else I went on to do, I always remember him saying about having an ability, having a talent, don't waste it. And, it, and, it's, and that stuck with me to the present, to where I am right now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So what advice would you give anyone listening to this then, John? That, like, that moment of your friend dying is when the penny drops. What advice would you give to anyone that wants to change their life and is almost waiting for things to happen? I would say in life, you have to make it happen. You've got to create it. You've got to put yourself in the room and create the opportunity. The opportunity might be hard to, to, to get, but you can get it. Like I was in a concrete coffin and I remember like when I was doing the cell circuits and, and the training on the RAM machine, it was these small incremental steps. It isn't, you don't jump from A to B. It's tiny so small that sometimes you don't even notice you're getting better but it's just that constant pursuit of making sure you put yourself in the position when it's ready to take the opportunity when it presents itself and and having resilience like it isn't easy mate like it is hard we all know it's hard it's not easy like no one gives you anything in life for nothing like when I got out of prison I I was sleeping in my mum's spare room I had no money I was training people in a local park for 35 quid but I had this absolute belief that I would become successful being an athlete and you're talking about a man that was like, again, locked in that cage, got released from prison. I had nothing. I couldn't, I couldn't even afford rent when I got released from prison. And my mum was letting me sleep in the spare room. But I used to get up every morning. And I, and I remember sitting there talking to my mum once. And, and I said to my mum about, I knew I had the ability because I did what I did in prison. And I said, I don't just want to be a builder. And my mum said, just keep doing what you're doing. There's a fascinating bit of research that relates back to the Vietnam War where there was a huge concern amongst like the American military that a lot of the soldiers when they were in Vietnam became heroin addicts and it was often to cope with the war and the trauma and the tragedy of it. And they expected there'd be an influx of heroin addicts coming back to America. And the reality was when these soldiers came back to their, their old lives, they gave up the habit because it was a different environment. So what concern did you have that you'd, you know, you'd, you'd been on this road of discovery and you could suffer and you were, had the potential to be an elite athlete? Going back to your mum's house, what concern did you have that you'd fall back into? Letting, go, letting go of the ego. Letting go of the ego. Because I, and, and, and again, I, I would say this, that I think this is the, one of the biggest things that people struggle with the most to overcome when they get released. Like, especially people involved in more high-end criminality. So their their whole ego gets wrapped up in this reputation, respect. In their their little universe, their bubble, they are the king of their world. 
And then they don't just want to then be normal and average. And it's how you deal with problems in life when they present themselves. Again, people don't challenge them because of who they are. They got respect and suddenly you're just a normal person and people will challenge you and they don't like that. Um, and I remember when I got out, like if you would have said to me now, when my friend died, 2009, I knew from that night in November, the 14th, I would never commit a crime in my life again. That was me done. I was out, right? They weren't, they're not just going to let me walk out of prison, but I knew myself, I was finished. I'm, I'm out of that world. When I was on the journey of going to get released, what was always in my head was I had never been challenged and no one had ever like spoken to me disrespectfully. So it was like, I remember when I, when I got out in 2012 and I joined a rowing club, high performance rowing club in London in Putney. It was like a feeder system for GB rowing. And um, I went down there and one of the coaches said, look, we'll take you out in one of the coaching launches so you get to understand how the tide works on the Thames and you can watch the crews go and row. And then next week you can come down and we'll put you in a boat and we'll, we'll teach you how to row. And um, there, was a, there was a rowing coach there called Brian Ullett. And he was coaching his crew. And I remember I'm sitting with him in his little speedboat and he's, he's, he's coaching them. And it was in, the, it was in a, a men's four. And one of the athletes has said something to one of the other athletes coaching them. He stopped them from rowing, and I'm not joking, he gave him the biggest bollocking you can imagine. And I'm like, oh, wow, like, I don't know how I would respond if he spoke to me like that. Because no one had ever spoken to me like that. And then I was like, I have to kind of make adjustments here because that could easily be me. Like, all the kid did, the kid was just coaching an athlete in front of him saying, you're doing something wrong, because he didn't say it to him, the coach. He said, he, he, the guy that did the coach, he said, you're not the, like, the effing you coach. You had to I rewire am. your whole life, basically. Yeah, yeah, mate, mate, massively, massively. Like, I hadn't any, like, even stuff like money management. Like, I remember, like, when I joined the round club, I, we used to go for breakfast after Saturday sessions. And the bill would come, it'd be like 50, 60 quid, right? For like six of us or five of us. And I was so used to just paying the tab years ago. Like when I used to go out with friends from years ago, everyone's arguing. The bill might come, it might be five, 600 quid, thousand pound. Everyone's arguing who wants to pay it. So it's your turn, my turn. No, it's your turn. Everyone's arguing. And then I've got released from prison. And I've still got this mindset of like, money's like water. And then I realised money isn't like water and it doesn't just come and go and come and go. And suddenly if it goes, it isn't coming in and suddenly you've got no money to live off. And it was these little adjustments that I, and it took time, like having, uh, when I went into like clothes shops, like the choice of colour, I wasn't used to being able to choose what coloured t-shirts that I wore. Like all these things, like it was these readjustments that you have to make coming out of prison. Essentially at its heart, right, this is a conversation about purpose and finding your purpose. And you always had one, whether it was being the best criminal you could be, that was your purpose. Then in prison, it was about surviving. That was your purpose. Then it became the rowing and being the best at that was your purpose. Now it's being an elite level triathlete and someone that inspires a younger generation. There's no doubt that anyone listening to this, no matter where they are in their life, it's unlikely they're at an ebb as low as you and you've shown you can get to the highest you got to. The big thing though for them is purpose. You had it and you, that's where you were not necessarily lucky, but you managed to make it work for you. So what do you say to the young people that you meet where you know they can get out because you've shown it can happen that that's not a debatable point it, you can do it and we talk about 100% responsibility on this podcast all the time you are responsible for your own life what about finding your purpose because without purpose it is so much harder I, I, I totally agree with you I think I think it is hard um, but I think that's why it's very important to have an open mindset and, and go on that journey of growth and development like look look and try different things. I say this to children all the time. And that's why, like, again, I'm so passionate about trying to put things in front of them and open up doors. A couple of years ago, 
I remember um, I did an event at a TV production company, a very big one that does all the stuff around cage fighting. And I did this talk and at the, I didn't realize in the room, the guy that was one of, he owned it somehow. And he heard me and he said, what can we do to help? And I said, you know what? You haven't got to give money, open up your doors, do some work experience. He said, yeah, right, done. So his PA was there, connected him up with a local school in Essex. They took this group of kids down in a bus from Basildon. The kids walked in and some of you guys might laugh today. First thing they said, they couldn't believe some of the people, like the cameraman had shorts and flip-flops on. They just thought everyone that had a job had to wear a suit and tie. And these kids were like, I want to I wanna, I wanna be a TV cameraman. That's what I want to do for a living. And it's just about, but that could change their lives now because now they understand there's something out there other than what they thought was out there. And that's why it's so important to have that open mind. But then you can't just open the mind and not present the opportunity. The opportunity has to then be there for them to sort of walk through that. And again, it comes back to when you are in a position in life and you can open up doors. I do think it's very important that we do do that. Look, we're approaching a new year. Um, people will listen to this podcast looking to pick up tips to help live a life they want to live in, in 2022. It's very, all very well the first few weeks of the year being a different person and you slip back into old habits. So what's your advice for creating a sustained change in the way that you live your life? It's, it's consistency, isn't it? It's, it's the consistency day in, day out. Like even when things are tough and hard, having the belief... That, you, that things will, will get better. They will get better. They do. They do. As long as you're persistent and consistent in what your approach is to life and what you're doing every day, um, and even when things do get tough, you, you can revert back sometimes. Like, I have bad days. We all do. It isn't, it isn't all sunshine and roses. I have bad days, but I just have this belief that I know I'll get through it, I'll work through it, and my life will be better. Tomorrow will be a better day than what today was. And, I, and again, I, the way I live my life is being in the present as well, not overthinking like... Why is that important? Because it's helped me get through most of my life. I think you have to be, tomorrow's not given to any of us, mate. Like, I, and I believe that. And I think sometimes people, like they bet on the future and they might not, that future might not ever come. And that's why it's so important to like, when you get up, where you are and what you're doing, you are happy and content in that, in what you're doing every day. Like Steve Jobs said it when he looked himself in the mirror and he was like, for three days consecutively, if he didn't like what he was doing, I would stop doing it and I would do something different. And I, I do believe that because it's your life on earth. Like tomorrow, my life might end. And I'm happy now, content. I'm having an engaging conversation with you guys. Um, and I, that's why I think it's so important to make sure that you create that life, that you're just happy and content in that moment, in that present. What will you do when you can't continue to be an athlete then? What's the sense of purpose that's going to be uh, consistent in your life? Well, I, 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 I believe life is a journey. I believe life is a journey. And I, I, the way even I've ended up here today talking in front of you guys, I've been very open and susceptible to opportunities in my life. And that's how I am where I am today. What I come to realize a few years back, I didn't ever really understand the, 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 the power of, of giving back. I was always generous, but I didn't, it wasn't really like, I didn't really go out of my way if it was an inconvenience to me doing what I was doing as an athlete. And then what I come to realize a few years ago was actually everything I've been speaking about today has always been about legacy and it's about leaving something and achieving something, my life having meaning. It's very selfish. It's all about me. It was about me being a millionaire. It was about me being a really good athlete, how quick I could run a marathon, how fast I could ride a bike, how quick I could swim, all the records. It doesn't mean anything. In the bigger picture of what life is in the universe, legacy is about helping other people that their lives are better. And if their lives are better, their children's lives are better. And it's a living legacy. It lives on. It's not a piece of metal. It's not a piece of paper you hang up on the wall and stuff like that. And when I started going into schools, I've had some, man, some of the most powerful experiences in my life where children have come up to me at the end crying and stuff. And I, 
I'm not an emotional person at all. Uh, and obviously, and I understand why I'm not, because that not showing weakness as a kid, the way my stepdad brought me up, don't cry, don't ever show any emotion. But some of the interactions I've had with young people, when I'm gone, that kid's life's going to be better because he interacted with me when he was at that school. And he could go on. And, and I, remember, I remember one story in particular, and I've spoke about it before. There was a young man called George. And I remember at the end of this talk, they, they basically brought in four assembly loads of kids. I think in total, I spoke to a thousand children in the morning. And at the end, the headmaster was walking me out of school to have a debrief. And this young kid walked out behind him. And he said, sir, can I talk to John? And uh, Simon Cox headmaster looked at me. He said, are you comfortable? I said, yeah. He went, I'll stand in earshot. And George looked at me and he started crying. And he said, I'm like you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm like you. My dad's getting out of prison. My mum and my sister bring me out. I don't want to go to prison. And I said, but you don't have to go to prison because you've got something now that I didn't have when you was a kid. You've got awareness of the situation. I didn't have that awareness. And I said, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, I want to work in sport. And it, at this school in Basildon was a real big sports academy. And he said, but I'm not really good at sport. I said, but you don't have to be. You could work be a physio, you could be a sports psychologist. There's, there's a lot of different jobs you can do in the sports industry, but you're in the greatest environment to flourish and grow. When George was sitting in his GCSEs, he was doing, I think it was his English, and Simon was in the, in, the, in the assembly hall walking up and down, and he looked at George, and George put his pencil down and stopped writing. And Simon went over and said, what's wrong? He said, I can't do it. And he had a block. And Simon went to him, I said to him, what do you think John would do now if, if John was here with you? And Simon said, I walked around, I looked around, he picked the pencil out and carried on doing it. And he got, I think he got a B in English. Now that, when I heard it, man, honestly, I remember my throat in the car, but it just triggered something inside me that that purpose again was like, my life has a great significance to whatever I'm doing as a sports person. It doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. It's about what I can contribute back to the world and, and have a positive impact over people's lives and draw down and on, on, on leverage my relationships with brands and open up doors to other people through those relationships. Because like it's little things that can make such a big difference to their lives, and sometimes people don't get that. I'm reminded as, uh, as you're talking. Um, I did some work in a school in an area called Miles Platin in Manchester, that's regarded as quite a poor area, and um, there was a high percentage of the kids in the primary school there that would go on into the prison system. And I remember asking the headmistress at that school how she sort of maintained her motivation, and she had a lovely phrase that she said, "You know, what we." talk about is that we're almost watering seeds that will never see flourish that it might be one day those kids are sat in a prison cell and they're trying to rack the brains as who spoke to me kindly who showed me a bit of respect or courtesy and she said and we want it to be us doing it and as you're saying it I'm reminded of that so for anyone listening to this that thinks that they can help others be high performers that they can water those seeds of others what advice would you give to those of us that want to play that role I think sometimes, because I, I, I've come across this quite a lot with people, lots of time people want to help. I do, but I think there's more good people in the world than bad. I do think that. It's just that the loudest, the, the bad people are more loud than the good. And I notice this quite often with people that go to work, they've got jobs, they work nine to five. They kind of think you need to be like Nelson Mandela or Barack Obama and have like, massive platforms. And they don't. Like it can be just going to volunteer, going down and like going into like a local community centre and telling the kids about your job and what jobs are open up a pipeline, taking some kids onto a local like work experience, take them up for a day. It isn't even a monetary thing. It's, it's about creating the awareness of these opportunities are there. Again, it's being able to just create these, just these moments of awakening for these young people to say, 
well, I come from like this council estate in Lambeth and now I work at one of the biggest accountancy firms in London and this is how I did it. And one of the kids might sit there and it's like that spark of imagination that then says, that's what I want to do when I get older. And I think it's a reminder that anyone and everyone can and should be doing this, whether it's your own kids, your nieces and your nephews, someone at work. We can all be someone that encourages, lifts people up, improves the world around us. I mean, that's the fundamental way of improving life isn't it just, just make one good deed a day yeah just be kind to someone say hello and goodbye be polite you could just make someone's day by doing it do you know what i mean like and, and i i live by that like i i whenever i see i try to engage with everyone that i'm with in the room and try to talk to people and be pleasant to them in the coffee shop and have eye contact with people because you can lift up their day or you could make you make their day a terrible day and improve your own I mean, yeah. we always say always ask a question of everyone you meet because everyone know someone that you don't yes most likely yeah exactly and always be respectful of other people's opinions if you don't agree with it <laughs> listen we're about to move on to our quick fire questions uh which is how we always finish these interviews but before we do i just want to ask you about your relationship with regret your story of becoming probably the most wanted man in the country when you were arrested right is so fundamental to where you are now so do you regret everything that you had to go through then to get to where you are now or do you accept that in life there's positives and negatives and the negatives then are giving you the positives now if everything in my life through regret would have been me i would have said no like so the the, the issue is in my situation it wasn't about i i inflicted stuff onto other people by my mentality to life i regret that massively and that's one of the one of my motivators today in the reason like the way i am the way i am and like if i can stop other people making the bad life choices i made they weren't mistakes a poor life choices based on what I thought was right and wrong at that point in my life. So I deeply regret what I did because it inflicted on other people's lives. If you said to me today, I had the power to rewind my life back and not spend 10 years in prison, I would not do it. I would go back there and spend every single one of those 10 years sitting in that cage. Because through that journey, I feel like I grew as a human. I learned more about myself. I had so much time to think it, the way that I perceive the world, how privileged I am to be able to be free, um, to live in the mountains. Like I have such, and it isn't just, these aren't just words, I mean it like, I feel so fortunate that I've had another shot at life because technically when you go to prison, you do technically in, a, in some sense die because you're taken out of society, you haven't got a normal life and you are locked in a concrete coffin. So it's like when you get out, you, you have this such great awareness of your freedom and how beautiful things are in life and and cherishing things and, and being at one with where you are in your environment. And so I wouldn't change that part of my life, but I would definitely yeah, change. I regret the part that led me to going into that place. So John, what are the three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you have to buy into? Do you know what? I've, I've really got one really, if I'm honest, but I would say it's just integrity of being who you are as a person. I would never sell myself out. I would always be who I am as a person. And if people like me or they don't like me, that I don't, I, you have to just let go of that. And you are who you are as a human being. Um, I've probably not answered that question. <laughs> probably no, that's good. We'll yeah. take it. Um, if you could go back to one period in your life, where would you go and why? So one of my most vivid memories in my whole life is the last time I was with my mate that died. Um, we, well, sorry, we, were, um, we were in this car and we were in Spain. And I remember the sun was coming up it was five five thirty in the morning and we had the roof down and I remember we had this head candy song on and it was the last time I ever saw him alive and then I left and come back and then yeah, that was he died and stuff and that yeah that 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 was sorry oh, I didn't think I'd be like that um 
yeah, that was that was one of my one of my happiest memories because it was the last time I was ever with him. And it's obvious from your emotions how much he meant to you and things. There is something lovely about this story in that someone you cared for so much. Look at the difference to your life his death made. Uh, mate, I, I said it when when it happened. Um, I'm not religious. When I when I was when I was younger, and then I I lost my faith years later. Um, and I remember um, when I found out he died, um, the chaplaincy come and saw me because of my surname, the Roman Catholic. Like they 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 come and he come. I used to be quite dismissive of him in prison. I never used to really engage. Didn't go to church or anything like that. And he comes to my cell, and he um, he sat down on the bed. And again, I, he, he started saying about, would you, when he's having his funeral, would you like to come down to the chaplaincy? And we say a prayer for him. And I said, no. Again, that millet, like, I didn't want to engage. And he went to me and I said to him um, about how unfair life is. I said, because my friend did a bad thing, but he was a good person. And I said, he's lost his life at 26 years old. And I'll never forget this. He said to me, you was blessed that you had him in your life and, and you had that interaction with him whilst he was alive. And then everything I've gone on to do with my life, and I, I remember I wrote a letter to his mum, said everything, whatever I do with my life, it will be because your son, because without your son, I wouldn't be who I am today. And he, and he, and he is not going to be that kid that died in that field in the Netherlands after committing a bank robbery. His life will have more meaning to that. And without Aaron Cloud, without him, there'd be no me. What was his name? Aaron Cloud. Amazing. There's a, um, a scheme, I don't know if you're aware of it, in, in Brazilian prisons where they have a list of recommended books and for every prisoner that reads one of the books on their recommended reading list, they get time off their sentence. So that informs this next question then, John. What, what book, podcast or TV series would you recommend that our listeners absorb? Uh, the, the, book, the book that had a fundamental impact over me in prison was The Secret, The Law of Attraction. You are what you project into the world. It's like an antenna, it'll come back to you. So your violent violence will come back, your positive positivity. And I read that book um, and that, that had a massive, massive impact on my, the way I perceived the world and how I was as a human. And TV series, I do love a documentary. I do, there's a, there's a filmmaker called Adam Curtis and I, I can sit there and watch everything he does. Um, but I don't think that would probably be, it's, it's more political. So I don't really, yeah. I don't. What was the name of the book? The Secret. The Secret. Yeah. Ronda Byrne. Yeah, is that that's right? it. Yeah. And the final question, and this is the, the kind of final message from you to leave our listeners and viewers with really, what is your one golden rule to living a high performance life? Belief, absolute belief. No matter how bad things get, how difficult, whatever hole you are in or you perceive that you're in, you believe you can always get out of it. Believe, 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 believe. And sometimes again, it's not just in like one step. It, it could take a month, a year, but you will get out of it. Don't just accept, that's it. Just keep believing and keep marching forward. Thank you so much Thank you. for coming and speaking to us. You know, I honestly did have this view of the world from my own upbringing. You have good people and bad people. And I think, you know, this conversation with you has certainly opened my eyes to the fact that you can have good people in bad situations and that, that can so often determine their entire life. Yet other people make a U-turn like you did. And it's a strong message for anyone listening to this. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. It's been a Thank privilege. You. Thank you. Damien, Jake. I'm unsure how to begin um, summarising that conversation with John McAvoy. Once again, obviously an absolute privilege. Just the most remarkable combination of two different lives, two completely different lives. But yeah. actually, I want to be totally honest and say, I think he's been high performance from the very beginning. And I know some people will find that weird. Like, how can you, how can you be a 
an armed robber and be high performance. But that was there from the very, very beginning in him, that desire to be different. I mean, the fact that when he first arrived, before we started the record and he mentioned it, he said to us, oh, I dreamed of buying the BT Tower when I was <laughs> nine years old. Like that's a man with desire and aspiration and whatever he was going to do, he was going to be the best at. And, how, you know, you can't say you can be a good armed robber, but he was the best, which was why he yeah. went to prison for so long. And now he's the best at what he does. It, what an amazing chat, right? Yeah, I thought it was an incredible illustration about the, the power of, of our environment. You know, so that when he left that maternity ward, he could have gone right, he could have gone left. He just happened to go into a family environment where uh, there was the gap left behind by his father, who'd unfortunately passed away. And the adult figures in his life that came into it were people that led him down the pathway of crime and, and assuming that those that followed the law and were law-abiding were somehow mugs. But equally, then when he's gone into prison and he's found himself on that rowing machine where he's had the prison officer, Darren, encouraging him and nurturing him. That's another seminal moment about how powerful environment is. And I think if anyone listens to this, you know, I, I think take away the idea that we can all be encouragers. We can all make any environment go, we can go into better by our own example, by the way that we interact with people and the way we try and lift others rather than try and drag them back down. And I suppose the other side of, of, of that coin is... I'd love people who've listened to this interview with, with John to take a look at their own environment. And of course, you can control the environment you're in, but also the people around you in that environment have incredible control. And I think it's so important to really just take a look at the people that don't make you feel great, don't lift you up, are drains on your life. And then equally look at the people who are the fountains, the people who just, for whatever reason, make you feel great. And an audit of the people around you, in your life, in your business, in your inner circle, it's not a bad thing because I think we review so many things in our lives, but how often do we really genuinely have a proper review and a proper audit of the people we've allowed to be around us? And as John and you have quite rightly explained, it is almost the biggest factor that determines the life we live. Yeah. There's a great metaphor that's often used where I talk about if you ever put a group of crabs in a bucket and if one of the crabs tries to get out of the bucket, what inevitably happens is the other crabs will reach out and drag it back down the idea that that somebody might escape from that environment is a threat to the others and I think sometimes we need to look that are we like that crab in a bucket are we surrounded by people that don't want us to go and do something different that don't want us to spread our wings or follow our passion because for whatever reason it's a threat to them they don't like it they want to protect you but they're just keeping you dragged back down into an environment that doesn't allow you to flourish mm. We talk, don't we, all the time about the strength is in the pack rather than in the individual. But it has to be the right kind of pack. You know, choose the right people around to challenge you, to inspire you, to lift you up. And it will absolutely change your life forever. What an honour to have that conversation. And you get a real sense of pride, don't you, that he has turned his life around to that extent. It's just remarkable. Yeah, you know, and, and, and again, I think it's easy sometimes to stereotype. I was reminded when John was talking to us about James Timpson and the work that he's done with rehabilitating young offenders from prisons and giving them employment, it's all too easy to sort of get into this sort of strident, draconian view of uh, lock people away, you know, people should be made to suffer the consequences of it, and to not allow ourselves open to the power of rehabilitation, the power that people can change if they're open-minded enough to do it. And 
John's a really good example of somebody that has benefited from people having that kind of optimistic viewpoint. Amazing. And if you haven't listened to the uh, James Timpson episode on the High Performance Podcast, now may well be a good time just to find it and have a listen because he is, again, an, an absolutely remarkable leader. Damien, thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak to John. That was, um, wow, that was a real privilege. No, I loved it. The privilege was all mine. Thanks, Jake. Now, one of the things we really like doing on High Performance um, is seeing the feedback from all of you. And people continue to send messages in their hundreds every single week to us, whether it is um, tracking down an email address, which people are pretty good at. I've had a couple of letters arrive at my house, which is remarkable. Um, but lots of people choose to get in touch on Instagram. And uh, a listener or a viewer uh, called Harry Finch got in touch and he said, during lockdown, I started listening to the High Performance podcast and I was blown away by the conversations that you had on the cast. I was currently on furlough, so I had plenty of time to listen to historical ones and new ones being recorded. I loved so many of them. Tom Daly, Robin Van Persie, Holly Tucker, the list goes on. But then it gets really interesting. Here's what he says. It really empowered me, opened up my mind and pushed me into having a growth mindset. And I acted on what I was listening to and wanted to give back even more than I was. Uh, and he says that was volunteering with his wife, delivering prescriptions during covid so I started volunteering my skills to support a local startup charity called It's Time with a mission to support young adults who've experienced parental loss. We worked together to design the look and feel of the charity. I was asked to be a trustee and was elated. In May of this year, we launched. We've had our first event and we're currently working on help guides and resources to support young adults on their grief journey. I just wanted to say thank you for the incredible podcast you've created. They've honestly made a huge impact and pushed me into doing so much more. I hope this gets to you all and my thanks are passed on. Well, Harry, thank you very much for getting in touch. Indeed, your thanks are passed on. Um, and actually, Harry joins us now <laughs> on, the, on the episode, on the podcast. Hey, Harry. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, we're really well, mate. First of all, thank you so much for sending such a nice message to myself and Damien and the entire team. Can you remember what you were listening to the moment that you realised that perhaps the High Performance Podcast was a bit more than just another podcast? Uh, it was just the conversations that you were having. I, I go back to some of the old ones like Robin Van Persie and, and Tom Daly about like just enjoy the moments, enjoy like the, the process rather than not being fixated on, on the outcomes. And it was just the, the conversations that you're having, the the openness that people were having on the show was just just really like resonated with me, to be honest with you. And it was just it's kind of like therapy as well, in a way, of when you know the chips were down with COVID and everything going on. It just kind of, you know, you go out for a walk, listen to it. And there was just so many things that I took from it. And I just was like, right, what can I do? What can I do to try and help people in situations and use my own experiences to, to help and help drive things forward and just try to act really. And what was it that made you want to give back then? What, like, what was that driver? I think some of it was probably just helping my, my own self-care. Like with the, the volunteering, the giving back, it felt good inside. And with the charity work and helping young adults, I've, I've been there myself and so have the other six trustees. So there's seven of us all together. And I remember the, like the Tracy Neville's, the, the Toto Wolves talking about your support network. And that naturally created a support network probably in that part of my life that I've, I've never, I have had it with family and friends who've been amazing on that journey. However, this was like a disguised support network, which really helped like on that part of the journey. And it just, just opened my mind up to, to look at it in a different way. And finally, have you got any sort of go-to 
moments from the podcast when things are hard or you're struggling a little bit? Are there any phrases or any takeaways or anything that, I mean, I've shown this to a few people on here. I've got a little wooden block in front of me with infinite purpose written on, which was obviously something that Susie Ma spoke about on High Performance. And that was a big one for me. What is it for you? Um, a few key ones for me are, I always remember I was in hospital actually on Christmas day when I listened to the Clive Woodward one, I had the appendicitis and I had surgery on Christmas day. So the one of the Clive Woodward ones, when he talks about being in a tunnel, if you don't want to be challenged, I think it was going standing in a tunnel and talk to yourself. And that really resonated with me. Um, basically just to accept being challenged and discuss and, you know, open up and move on. And then other ones, Tom Daly, you know, about the process, you know, having goals of I'm going to go and get some milk and things like that. Johnny Wilkinson, which is obviously resonates with a lot of people, very, very powerful. And also Robin Van Persie, sorry, when he pushes the responsibility onto his child to go, look, if you want to do this, pull your socks up, you can do it. It's not your coach's fault. It's not their fault. And it's those kind of key messages that, yeah, that really hit home. Listen, thank you so much for uh, getting in touch, dropping us a message, listening to the podcast, sharing it with people, um, coming on coming on and talking to us. But most of all, like congratulations for not just listening to it. And we say this to a lot of people, listening to it is one thing, but then really acting upon it and acting upon it as you have in a really selfless way to get involved in It's Time, which is the young charity supporting adults who've experienced parental loss is, um, is really impressive. So well done, mate. Thank you so much. Really well done, appreciate Kyle. it. I always love those conversations, Damien. Um, and it's so interesting, the, the things that people pick up on. I mean, we've spoken to three or four listeners of the podcast now. I don't think any of them have mentioned the same thing, which is, which is so fascinating. I know, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? And especially when, like uh, Harry demonstrated there, you go back through the archives and he's talking about Robin Van Persie describing it as the old episodes, which they still seem really fresh in my <laughs> mind. So... It's a bit disconcerting, but I love the fact that there's an archive there that's timeless that people can go and delve into. Mm. Um, and I'm delighted that Harry's found that they're just as re uh, relevant as some of the more recent podcasts we've been uh, putting out. And talking of recent ones, we've had some really interesting reaction to the Michael Bisping episode. Joel on Instagram said, what an amazing episode. Michael's passion comes through in everything he says. Thomas says, the perfect combination is high performance and Michael Bisping. Um, having followed Michael's career for a few years, I think it's fair to say he wasn't best prepared for this interview. Correct? But sometimes you get a more honest insight from a less polished approach. And the takeaways that Thomas had was, there are outliers to general rules of success, which I think Michael would be. The unflappable mentality can get you into trouble, but much less likely if you've genuinely found your true calling. And once you get past a certain skill threshold, mentality becomes a huge part of the reason for success. Those were from James as well on LinkedIn. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're thinking, what is this archive, man? What is this? Well, we recorded them decades ago. Last year, um, there's about 60 episodes. So if you're new to high performance, if this is the first time that you've listened to the podcast, if you just heard what John McAvoy's had to say um, and it's resonated with you and you want more, then all you need to do is just uh, scroll down, click more episodes, look at the archive. You can go right back to the very first episode of the very first series and there's, there's loads for you to get your teeth into. Uh, we'll just finish with this message that came in from George. Afternoon, chaps. Just a quick message of appreciation. I've just recently come through a life event due to a change in employer and certain disputes that went along with it, which has put myself and my family under a lot of pressure and stress. I've always flitted between podcasts, but since finding yours, I've clicked with it and I found some of the shows have really helped me along the way and back to my usual self. I'm looking forward to hearing many more. That's from 
George on Instagram. And I think that is the, the sort of the key message, I guess, for people, Damien, is that there won't be things you agree with all the time in these podcasts. There will be episodes where you perhaps think, nah, it didn't quite work for me. But if you just give these a go and see where they take you. Yeah, there's a brilliant quote. It's often attributed to Albert Einstein that says, I can't teach you anything, but what I can do is make you think. And I think if people can come to this, and like you say, it's not that you don't have to agree with Michael Bispin, John McAvoy, or you know uh, Mel Robbins, some of the guests that we've had on so far, but the very fact that you don't agree means that you're thinking you're taking an uh, opposite stance or it, you're reflecting on your own beliefs, and that's the real value. Damien, thanks so much, mate. Thanks, Jake. Loved it. Can I also say a big thanks as well to John McAvoy for coming on this podcast and uh, sharing so much with us. Um, it was a really moving conversation, so I hope that you got a lot from it. So thank you very much, John. Of course, massive thanks to Professor Hughes. Without him, this podcast isn't the podcast it is. Thanks as well to Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio for his hard work, to Eve, to Will, to Hannah for their constant driving behind the scenes to try and grow the High Performance Podcast. And talking of growing, we have a members area. If you want to become a member, all you have to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. You can get all the details there about the High Performance Circle. I'll ping you an email. You just reply to that and you're in and you can get some amazing content from us as well. Um, that's also the same place. You can order the book and get tickets to our book tour. We'll be in Bristol and Manchester. And thanks as well to our sports partner, Give Me Sport, for loads more clips and loads more content. Just go to givemesport.com forward slash podcast as well as that. We are touring in 2022 around the UK. In fact, if you scroll down in the description to this podcast right now, click the link, um, I'll send you an email, and you can register your interest for the High Performance Tour coming around the UK in 2022. So get involved in that right now. Um, but thanks very much for listening. Wherever you are across the world, have a brilliant day. Continue to strive for a high-performance life, and I hope you found today's episode really helpful. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.